Well, uh, we get to uh, start a new series today. It's, it's always a daunting thing. It's an intimidating thing to, you know, to begin a, a book, you know, and it's like, well, well, you start here, but how far do you go? And, you know, you just have to try to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's interesting. But we will begin our journey through the book of Ephesians today. Um, I have no idea how long it's going to be. Uh, you know, that, that's a question that comes to mind sometimes with people. It's like, well, is it going to be 10 weeks, 6 weeks, or 20 weeks, or 50 weeks? And I, I have no idea. Um, it, it is very, very uh, rich doctrinally. So I would imagine we'll be in it for a while. Um, you know, I've been poking around trying to find resources on it, commentaries and all that. And uh, man, Martin Lloyd-Jones has written a, quite a bit on... Uh, on Ephesians, and he's one of my favorite old-time preachers, but he basically wrote 400 pages of commentary for the first chapter. Uh, so that's like, that's usually like the full, you know, commentary on the whole book at 400 pages. So that's like insanity. Uh, and then there's an old Puritan named uh, Thomas Goodwin, uh, who I've recently just sort of uh, started discovering his writings, and he wrote 610 pages on the first chapter. So uh, um, I think we're going to be in the first chapter for a little while, and then, you know, and then we'll transition into the rest of the book. Uh, I, I don't think that I'm going to write 600 pages of commentary on it. I don't, I don't have the same mind that those two gentlemen have, but, uh, but it's interesting. How much has been said about the book of Ephesians? How much has been written about the book of Ephesians? How much has been written about the first chapter, which I'm just now beginning to discover is probably one of the most amazing chapters in all of Scripture and one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And so I'm really anticipating how God is going to move in this thing and what he's going to teach us. This morning we're going to begin with a little bit of an introduction. I'm not going to drag it out. I'm just going to give you some basic things. We're going to kind of cover the who, what, where, and when of Ephesians, and we'll do that by looking at the first verse. In fact, I had to submit the information for your bulletin long before I had anything written down because the Rogers aren't here. So, you know, it's like two weeks before they leave, they're contacting me saying, you need to come up with something for the bulletin. And it's like, well, I haven't really begun to look at Ephesians yet because, uh, you know, I work three jobs and so I don't have time. Well, come up with something, you know. So, okay, I think we're going to do the first two verses and uh, this might be a good quote, right? So, you know, it's kind of the nature of uh, being a bivocational pastor. So anyways, we're not even going to cover the second verse today. We're only going to look at one one. And uh, that's, that's as far as I could get. And so I'd like to read a few quotes about the book of Ephesians just to whet our appetites. And these are by various theologians and people throughout history. Uh, and, and these are what some of, some of these folks have said about this book. Uh, have you heard of the early church father, Jerome? Uh, we're talking way back. He said this, Ephesians is like the heart in the midst of the body. That's a pretty profound statement if you think about it. I mean, he's talking about in terms of all of Scripture, like Ephesians is the epicenter. It's the heart. It's the vessel that, 
that pumps life into the body. And I thought that was a an amazing quote. And obviously, I, I, I'm a little skeptical whenever I read these things. I always tend to go to the negative and say, I think you're kind of overshooting it here, pal. Uh, I don't know about that. The English poet Samuel uh, Coleridge wrote, Ephesians is the divinest composition of man. That's an interesting thing for a poet to say. Sounds like something a poet would say, right? Uh, English-born theologian and third president of Princeton Theological Seminary, John McKay, wrote, and I think this is in your bulletin, Ephesians is the crown and climax of Pauline theology. That's an interesting quote. Uh, Welsh theologian and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorites, and I would strongly recommend that you read his books and his sermons. And you can even, he actually died in 1980, so there's still some recordings around of his sermons. I think there's about 3,000 of them out there, so you can listen to his sermons and just, just be prepared for a lot of t- tongue rolling. You know, he does that all the time. It's an amazing thing. But his, his series on Ephesians is one of the best you'll ever listen to or read. And he said, the epistle to the Ephesians is the sublimest and most majestic expression of the gospel in all of Scripture. I mean, these are big statements about this book. Scottish theologian William Barclay, who I, who I like to read on occasion, said, Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. The queen of the epistles. And, of course, I immediately say the who's the king, and I think Luther would say Romans. Um, interesting. Another Scottish theologian, F.F. F. Bruce, and his commentaries are spectacular. He said, Ephesians is the quintessence of Paulinism. The quintessence of, a, of a, uh, Paulinism. Quintessence obviously means the most perfect embodiment of something, and Paulinism is the body of theological doctrine taught by the Apostle Paul. Isn't that weird that later on theologians came up with something called Paulinism? It's like, can't we just call it Bible? Why do we have to have an ism on it? But there is such a thing as Paulinism, and that would be Paul's theological stream of thought. So, and he says that it's the quintessence of it. This is like the most accurate description of Paul's theology in Scripture, or Paul's understanding of these doctrines that we're going to be looking at. So, pretty amazing stuff if you think about it. I think we're headed in a really amazing direction and I think the book is going to be, it's just going to blow our minds. I think God's going to blow our minds. Let's pray real quick before we kind of move into our who, what, where, and when. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Um, I pray that, that this message would not be just some sort of scholastic learning thing where we're getting a timeline down and all of that, but that we would be edified and changed and challenged and transformed by the truth of Scripture. That's our heart cry, at least mine. And so move in power and speak to us today. And we have come in as a particular person, and we pray that we would leave as a particular person that has been impacted and transformed and sanctified by the truth of Scripture, more particularly the truth that we see in Ephesians. And so have your way with us. May your will be done and may you be glorified by all that is said here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Pretty obvious. Look at the very first word in Ephesians 1.1a. The very first word is what? Paul. 
It was Paul who wrote it. Paul is the one who wrote this book. And, uh, and Paul typically self-identifies in his letters. He wrote 13 of them in the Scripture, maybe 14 if we include Hebrews, which was the widely held belief up until a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago. Um, but for the most part, he identifies himself as the author. It's the very first word <laughs> in the very first sentence of the book, Paul. Paul wrote it. And after establishing his person, he then established his position, right? You look at 1A, uh, chapter 1, 1A again. He says, Paul, comma, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So we know that the apostle Paul, whom we've learned a great deal about through our Acts series, and many of you were here for that, most of the book of Acts is devoted and committed to describing historically his ministry. Uh, and then obviously he wrote, you know, 13 books in the epistle. This is a serious dude. This is an amazing guy. He is the author. He is the apostle who wrote this letter. Apostle was an official designation given to certain leading individuals in the New Testament churches. In case you're not familiar with what apostle means, we hear that term from time to time. If you would attend a church, you might hear it there or you might hear it out and about. And, uh, and so it was an official sort of designation given to certain leading individuals, not all, but certain ones during the, the New Testament or the first century era. Uh, the biblical qualifications for a, an apostle such as Paul are as follows. What would it take to be an apostle, we might say? We could answer it by saying the apostles, and there were only a handful of them, they received their commission directly from Jesus Christ. In Paul's case, it was on the Damascus Road, where he was on his way to Damascus to persecute, imprison, arrest Christians. He was an unbeliever at the time. He was a Jewish guy, and he was on his way to arrest Christians. We've heard all of this through Acts and then Christ intervened and revealed himself to him and saved him, regenerated him, and commissioned him for ministry, commissioned him to be an apostle. And so this is critical that we know this, that an apostle is one who is commissioned directly from Jesus. And so if someone today calls themselves an apostle, which many do in particular threads of Christianity, will call them, well, I'll quote and unquote that because we're not sure if they are Christians or not, but they call themselves Christian. They self-identify. They, some of their leaders call themselves apostles. And for that to have happened, they would have had to have had a divine encounter with Jesus face-to-face where he commissions them. That's how it works. And so we now know that not people today, they can call themselves that all day long, but they're not apostles. Uh, the apostles saw the Savior after his resurrection. We're talking about physically. Paul's case, Damascus Road, that's not, he, he, he was commissioned by Jesus face to face, meaning he saw Jesus face to face, in a sense, after his resurrection. So this is a critical part of being an apostle. You had to have a face to face encounter with Jesus in a sense and be commissioned. And so you had to see him after his resurrection. The apostles exercise, most of them exercise special inspiration, or we would say they expounded and wrote Scripture. Paul wrote, as I said, 13 books of the 27 New Testament. 
Uh, maybe even that 14th one in Hebrews. So an apostle was given divine inspiration, divine articulation. And so, and we know Peter was an apostle, John, you know, and we see that apostles were the ones who were divinely inspired, filled with the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit to author or write Scripture on God's behalf. And so, do we have apostles out there today writing Scripture not in the true sense, but we have people out there that are saying God is still speaking and they call themselves apostles and it's apostasy is what it is. It's heresy and that's all done and sealed. So they gave special inspiration. They expounded and wrote scripture. The apostles exercised in a way a supreme authority over the church. Uh, during that period, during the apostolic period, they were uh, like the... We would say maybe the highest ranking leaders in the church at that time. They were above elders and pastors as those things began to form uh, until they had this authority, divine authority given to them until Scripture was completed. And then the Word of God took that official seat of authority. And so, because obviously somebody had to be in charge and have supreme authority until Scripture was authored, until it was written. And so the apostles had that role until Scripture was completed, and then God's Word became our supreme authority. And so, but an apostle had to have this supreme authority. They were over the churches and pastors and elders and those things. Uh, interesting. Uh, the badge of apostolic authority was what? What was it that authenticated them? What badge did they carry in a sense? The ability to perform what? Miracles. So if you, again, study the book of Acts as we did and you study scripture, you'll see that 99% of the time those who were performing miracles were the apostles. They weren't Jim who works at Arco. It was the apostles who did these miraculous things. And there was a purpose behind it, not just that God loves people and wanted to heal them or these things, but that he would show, God would show through the miracles that the kingdom of God was being manifested and that the apostles who were the primary preachers of God's word and those exercising authority, they were authenticated by these miracles, that they would speak and then back what they say with a miracle. And that is the badge that they wore and that they alone War And, of course, Paul had these abilities. He performed miracles quite regularly, healed lame people and did these sorts of things. And so that was an apostolic badge. Uh, the apostles were also given a universal commission, if you will, to found churches. The apostles were primarily, in the New Testament, the church planters. More particularly, the apostle Paul. But if you read a little church history, you will notice that the apostles at some point in history began to scatter and go into parts of Asia and, and Africa and these other nations and faraway lands, and they planted churches in these places. They were all church planters in a sense. They were all martyred for planting churches and, and, you know, and preaching the gospel with the exception of John. And so those are some qualifications. That, those are the things that come inserted in and installed in Paul's titling of himself. 
When he says he's the apostle, when he says Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is these things. I have the badge. I, I have the authority. I, I have this divine right to do these things and to say these. That, that's the point here by him identifying. The things that we've listed, these definitions, they're all packed into apostleship. When Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, he is claiming to be an appointed messenger with authority. Uh, the term apostle is not incidental. The crucified Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one of the Jews, the long prophesied Messiah, the one once dead but risen and alive with God, the King of the universe, the Lord who struck down the rampaging Saul on the road to Damascus to make him a redeeming voice to the Gentiles of the eternal love of God. This same Jesus Christ is the one for whom Paul has been called to speak. He is an apostle, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the way that we can interpret that little phrase... Apostle has all this authority and stuff backed into it, all of this divine appointment, but that he is also the very mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. He is the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. Him saying that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus means that, that he not only belongs to Christ Jesus, but also that Paul represents him so definitely that Paul's message is Christ's own message. When Paul speaks under the inspiration of God's Spirit, Christ Himself speaks. So, who actually wrote this letter? Who is the true author of this letter? Christ Himself. It is Christ whom Paul speaks for on His behalf. Christ gives Paul the words to speak. You're my messenger. Say these things to this body of believers. Say this, these things to this. And that's the way that we should look at this intro here. It is Christ himself who is speaking. After establishing his person and position, he then establishes his permission. Right? Basically, he establishes his person. I'm Paul. Position. I'm the apostle of Jesus Christ. And his permission. Ephesians 1, 1a again. By the will of God. I am Paul the Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There's the permission. Paul's apostleship and authority were based upon the will of God. They were based upon the will of God. Paul did not self-will himself to apostleship. He did not self-appoint himself to apostleship as the Corinthians began to think later on. What a way to treat the guy who plants your church later. Hey, we don't really think you're an apostle like Peter and the others. It wasn't Paul who willed himself into apostleship. He didn't climb some sort of ministerial ladder and began down in the little feeble junior high ministry, got to high school, got to college, you know, got to adult ministry, and now he's an apostle. That's the way we tend to think of ministry here. That's not the way it worked with Paul. He did not establish his own authority or position. He was not some sort of power tripper like we see some guys in ministry today. God made Paul an apostle according to his own will, according to God's own will. God was the one who permitted Paul to speak on his behalf. Paul wanted to make sure that his readers understood this because his 
Apostleship was based upon the will of God. He could, if necessary, defend his right to speak, encourage, challenge, command, exhort, rebuke, and etc., right? If the Ephesians felt that or believed that Paul was speaking on his behalf according to his own will, then they would be probably more likely to disobey his words, to shift his words to the side, to say these things aren't important. What is this fellow saying? But see, Paul makes sure that they understand that, hey, I'm coming to you by the will of God. It is God who has sent me and commissioned me in Christ Jesus. And so he wants to make sure that that they pay very, very careful attention to this letter. Because as we will learn, in some ways, it's a matter of life or spiritual death. That's how important this letter is. And so Paul doesn't want to come out and say, hey, I think you guys need to take a listen to me. I want to give you a few options. He's saying, I have been sent. I was sent to plant that church. I, I, have been, I am now writing to you by the very will of God. God has commanded me to write this letter. You need to pay attention. You need to obey what I say. All of that is pressed into one one. And if you think about it, It makes a lot of sense because there was a time when Paul breathed out threats against the church. He held the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. What a tremendous man he was. Uh, We could say, or the Ephesians could at least say, what right does this man have to speak for God? Not at all based on his past. Not at all based on his record, right? They could easily say that about him. If they learned about Paul's past and everyone pretty much knew who he used to be, in so many ways that happens to us, right? You, you know, you spend the majority of your life or a, a season of your life or a long period of your life as an unbeliever living in, in, you know, rampant habitual sin, doing whatever it is that your flesh desires and you live that way and then, and then, and then by divine appointment God saves you and you begin to change and your friends around you, they don't want to listen to your testimony or believe what you're saying because of who you used to be. Uh, you don't have any credibility with me. You and I used to go to those clubs together and do those things, and we used to snort that stuff. And, and so why, why, would I, why would I listen to you? The same thing can happen here in the book of Ephesians. Why would they listen to Paul? He used to kill Christians. And so he is establishing his authority given by God, his record, you know, his record has nothing to do with his authority. He was a particular person who did things. That doesn't lessen his authority as an apostle. It doesn't lessen his right to speak truth to these people. Paul was not an apostle because of his record. (laughs) He was an apostle because of Christ's redemption. See, Christ redeemed him and saved him and pulled him out of that life and commissioned him to be an apostle and gave him authority and carried him along in ministry, and spoke through him, and did miracles through him. He was the very messenger of Christ, so his past is irrelevant, just as yours is. I would say our past helps in some ways for us to give testimony, and to speak truth, and to be sensitive to people, and if we remember where we came from, it helps our witnessing to others. We'll be more sensitive, but for the most part, it cannot be held against you. God doesn't hold it against you, Those sins and the sins you commit today are as far as the east is from the west, but we certainly don't want to give in to sin. He was an apostle because God willed it and brought it about through the gospel and work of the Holy Spirit. So that's who wrote the letter. It's Paul. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
Authority has been established. Very first line. Makes sense, right? Everything downstream. You need to listen is what he's saying. Who did he write to? Who did the Apostle Paul write to? Well, you know, it, it doesn't take rocket science to figure this out. Ephesians 1, 1b. But there's a trick here. Because immediately when I said that, everyone said, the Ephesians. Yes, but there's a trick. Not just the Ephesians. 1-1-B, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, this is a massively, massively important part of the context and the hermeneutic. We must understand who Paul was writing to. Because it's only in the understanding of who he wrote to that the letter actually makes any real sense. Or that we actually get to the real meaning of it and the proper interpretation of it. It's massive. As a rule of thumb for all of us, we should always figure out the who, what, where, and when of a book if we desire to understand what it is that we're about to study. You know, so often people do an eisegetical approach to Scripture. They just pick it up and start reading it and start proclaiming what it means without any study or meditation on or prayer through the context. They don't take the time to investigate why it was written. They rarely look at the verses right before that verse, the verses right after. They just take a verse and begin to tell everyone what it means to them. And that is a deadly and dangerous practice. That practice, eisegesis, actually leads to apostasy and heresy. Because you're not framing and holding the Scripture in its context, in its original context. It was written for a particular reason to a particular people with a particular meaning. It doesn't have multiple meanings or any of that. It only has multiple meanings when we fail to understand the context. All of Scripture has one meaning. Every verse, there's one meaning. doesn't mean that it's not like a diamond and it's faceted and that you can describe that meaning a zillion ways you can. But Scripture, had, there's no two views. There's no opposing views in Scripture. There is no free will of man. He can do whatever he wants. And sovereignty of God. There's one or the other. But see, we arrive at these conclusions when we do not understand the context of Scripture. And that's why it's necessary that we do the who, what, where, and when before we even attempt to teach this book. And so it was written to who? To the saints who are in Ephesus, that city in Asia Minor, large city. That's who it was written to. Let me give you an example of Jesus misunderstanding Scripture. And this is something that, that I'm going to work really hard at during this series. And, and I, I'm, I'm as prone to mistakes as the next guy. We'll take a passage like 2 Peter 3.9, for instance. Uh, people say that it supports a type of universal atonement because God doesn't want any to perish. That's the way that most people interpret that passage. But you must understand who Peter was writing that letter to, just as we must understand that for Ephesians. Was Peter writing to the worldwide universal community of man in 1st or 2nd Peter? No. He was writing to believers. 2 Peter 1.1 so the right interpretation is that God is not slow or slack in fulfilling His covenantal promise, which is what? To bring all of His people, the whole church, to repentance and salvation. 
That's the right interpretation of that verse. But see, people unmarry it from who it was written to, why it was written, the who, what, where, and when, and now all of a sudden it's a universe. God doesn't want anyone in the world to perish. Never mind the word covenant that follows, that comes before that line. Has God covenanted to save the entire world? No, he has not, because if he had, the entire world would be saved. And so the point that I'm trying to stress here isn't the doctrine of election. The point that I'm trying to stress, and it's not Calvinism that I'm trying to stress. What I'm trying to stress is that if you take a book or a verse or a passage and neuter it, unwed it, unmarry it from context, you land at some crazy conclusions. And it's like the ship gets a few inches off course, and by the time you get to the end of the book, you were supposed to land in California, and you're in Saudi Arabia. And, and now where are you? The next thing that follows is what we call shipwrecked faith. Because you're not interpreting Scripture right. You don't understand God's word or will. And now you're left to who? The devil. And so it's so critical that we understand. So the 2 Peter example, we must treat Ephesians the same way. We must understand the who, what, where, and when. If we are to properly understand this book, it was written specifically to the saints who are in Ephesus. Not the whole world, not everyone else, to Christians in that community. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to every Christian who has ever lived, lived then and lives today and will live in the future. It absolutely applies to every Christian. But it's saints that we're speaking of. So that's a rule of thumb. Who, what, where, and when. Be careful when you interpret. Use exegesis, not eisegesis. Don't pull a verse and make it into what you want. You're getting off track and it's very, very dangerous. Now, Ephesians 1, 1b contains three definitions of believers or what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. An interesting phrase. I copied these definitions from a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, so these insights are not mine, and you'll be able to tell immediately because they're above my mind and pay grade. All right? Firstly, we see in that text that Christians are saints. They are saints, is what Paul says. Paul used the term saint or saints 39 times in his epistles, making saint or saints his favorite title or moniker for Christians. Read the epistles of Paul. You will see saint, saint, the saints, over and over and over. And if you take a look at all of his letters, the 13 books, if you will, it, the word saint or saints appears more times in Ephesians than in any other single epistle, nine times in this one. And Ephesians is only six chapters long, so that's fairly impressive. Uh, the biblical meaning of saint is different, though, from what the church or even general, you know, secular society has made it. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is a particularly holy person who is exalted to be a saint by ecclesiastical procedure, like the church puts him through a procedure to make this person a saint. Uh, the person is nominated for the position and usually it's long after they've died. <laughs> you know, well, that guy was a good guy about three centuries ago. I think we should make him a saint. It's kind of like with artists, you know. They don't, you know, their work isn't worth anything until they're dead, right? In history, some artists have, you know, 
gotten paid, but for the most part, their work is no gain. I, I produced actually a pretty fairly good size volume of work in 2007. My wife's waiting for me to croak. I don't think my stuff's going to be worth anything after I die. People are going to look at it and go, that is the stupidest thing. If it isn't cows and cowboys in this area, people just don't get it. Don't do abstraction here. And people are like, that don't make no sense to me. I don't know why I said these things. Maybe I'm a little bitter because no one bought my art. Um, It was really lame anyways, but... So the Catholic Church has this procedure where they make a saint. It's someone who they nominate for the position. Then a trial is held in which one advocate pleads the virtues of the nominee and another advocate, advocate. Okay, so it's like you have this trial and you have one guy who's in favor of this person becoming a saint and you have another advocate who's opposed to it. And guess what he's called? The what advocate? The devil's advocate. You ever wondered where that term comes from? That's where it comes from. Somebody's got to play the devil in this thing and make this guy look bad. And this person, he tries to tear this guy down, the devil's advocate. He tries to tear this guy's down in his character and all that. That's a really strange thing. Like, like one guy over here saying, this guy was a great guy. He did all these things. He fed the homeless and all this guy over here saying, hey, he was terrible, man. He used to stay up all night drinking. I mean, it's like, what the heck is going on here? But this is a literal process. When the person's worthiness is properly established, he or she, and they do uh, make saints, uh, gals can become saints in the Catholic movement, Uh, when that person's credibility and worthiness is established, then they are officially declared a saint. And similarly, uh, the world uh, looks upon a saint, if it sees one, uh, as a particularly good person. And so that's basically what This whole idea of sainthood in the Catholic movement and in the world is based primarily upon if that guy's a good person, if that person's a good person, then then we'll call them a saint. Have you ever had anyone refer to you as a saint? I have, you know, maybe you do something nice or something. Oh, you're such a saint, you know, or whatever. And it's like, you know it, right? Not based on what I just did, but, you know. So that's the worldly kind of concept of what a saint is. And, And quite frankly... It's very far from the biblical idea of what a saint is. In the Bible, to be a saint is to be set apart. Saint is hagios in Greek, which means holy. And we know what holy means, most of us do, and that means set apart. Also, according to the Bible, it is God who makes us a saint. It is God who sets us apart, not us. So God is the one who appoints and creates and makes a saint. Not us. Not by what we do, but by God's own providential decree, election, whatever you want to call it. He's the one that makes saints. He Actually, when he saves a person, he like permanently sanctifies them in a sense. He sets them apart from the world. They immediately become different from the world. And at that point, they're declared a saint. They're called a saint via Scripture. And so that's the right way to look at it. It's not what we do that makes us a saint. Uh, It's what we do that really makes us a sinner, right? It's kind of the reverse of that. And in fact, we don't have to do anything to be a sinner. We are a sinner whether we sin or not. We actually sin when we're not planning to sin. (laughs) I mean, we just sin all the time. And what is the purpose? God sets apart these folks for his purposes and for his glory. He makes saints for his purposes and glory. And every Christian is therefore a saint. And every saint is therefore a Christian. It's important that we understand this. Moreover, every true Christian is in some sense separated from the world, right? 
Uh, It does not mean that we are taken out of the world. That's not God's will for us, although I often pray that it would be. Um, It's very difficult to, at times, with this flesh and temptation and the pull of the world to live for Christ, to live a holy life. It's very challenging. And plus, the world is imploding. It's on fire everywhere. And so we often say, just get us out of here. Just rapture us up and get us out of here. But it's not God's will to do that. He wants us here for His namesake and His glory. Uh, He doesn't want us removed permanently, but He does remove us spiritually. He does remove us even, um, I would say, psychologically and mentally. He does remove us in that way. We do begin to see the world differently. We begin to say to ourselves, I don't think I fit. I used to just follow along with all this stuff, and I agreed with all of it, but now I don't know. This thing, it just seems really, really bad, and it doesn't glorify God. In fact, it hates God, and, uh, and I just don't fit. And, and that's because a saint, the saints, belong to a different kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of God now. Huge difference. So Christians are saints. B, Christians are faithful. Well, not all of them. Yes, all of them. True Christians are faithful. Okay? They are. Uh, when Paul calls the believers in Ephesus faithful in Christ Jesus, he has two ideas in mind. Uh, the first and primary meaning of the word faithful is exercising faith. Uh, that is, a Christian is one who has heard the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ and who has exercised faith in that gospel or believed it, if you will. Uh, this faith has three elements to it. First, there is an intellectual element. Faith involves content. Uh, For faith to exist, that content must be proclaimed and understood. So it's not wrong for us to believe or think that faith has an intellectual component to it. It does. It, 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 It does have to do with our mind. It has to do with us comprehending truth. And so many people say today that faith is all heart, and it's all heart, and it's all emotion. And no, it's not. I believe that faith has to be birthed first in the mind. If you cannot understand something, it cannot transition to every other member. It cannot transition to the heart, not this beating thing in the middle, but to the center of who a person is. So faith, it literally begins with the renewal of what? One's mind. We call that illumination. And so there is an intellectual component to faith. And when Paul says those who are faithful, he means that. You've understood the gospel and submitted to it. Secondly, there is an emotional element to faith. Uh, The content that is understood, if understood rightly, is not something that can be passed off or simply passed off as interesting, but of no, you know, but of little real importance. It involves the death of the very Son of God for me, a sinner. Faith at this level warms the heart and draws for a loving response to God who has himself, who has revealed himself in Christ Jesus. So what begins in the mind transitions to the center of a person and begins to be exuded through an emotion. Wow, Christ not only is a historical figure who died on a cross, but that he did that for me as a sinner a lost sinner. And that moves this person to what Matthew chapter 5 speaks of and talks about spiritual poorness, spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. An emotional response fires up and is ignited. And that is what 
David illustrates in Psalm 51 contrition, sorrow. God has saved me. It's not that he just did this in a vacuum in hopes that some would respond to him. He did it for me. I know me. That's insane. And then one is moved to tears, to elation, to whatever. So faith has an intellectual component. Faith has an emotional component, right? Thirdly, faith has a volitional element or component, volitional Having perceived and understood the gospel and having been affected by it, the true Christian now makes a personal commitment to Christ who died for him. So, faith is birthed in the mind, transitions to the center of a person, and now it begins to be expressed through volitional action. A person responds to it verbally and even physically in obedience, in submission to the Holy Spirit, in submission to the gospel. So those three things must be present. The second meaning of the word faithful is to continue in the faith. It's not just to begin in the faith, it's to continue in the faith, or as we might say, to what? Keep the faith. It involves the idea of perseverance in Christian life, in the Christian life, enduring to the end. And Jesus articulated this. He said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Did he mean that only those who can hang on to this thing and cultivate it and keep it going by their own will and own work will, you know, if they endure to the end, will be saved? No, what he's saying is, is that it's that person who endures to the end, that's the saved person. It's not the person who receives Christ as Lord and Savior in 1979 and has nothing to do with him for 30 years until his death. It's the person who shows faith, a living, breathing faith. James 2.17, faith without works is dead. What works? Ergon, Greek. It's works and fruits of the Holy Spirit. One who bears fruit. One who shows an inward reality, a new reality, a new creation. And those works are manifested. They come out. And he loves Jesus. And he tells about Jesus. And he serves for Jesus. And he submits to Jesus. And he confesses Jesus to the world. And these things. It's a faith that is not devoid of ergon works. That's what he's speaking of. One who begins with Christ and one who continues with Christ and one who ends with Christ. That's who he's addressing in this church. Those people. So what happens is there's an automatic division now in the Ephesian church because half of it is probably comprised of people who did something for Christ but haven't continued on and what have you. Just as in every church this happens. Not every person in a church is a truly saved person. Why would you say that, Pastor Phil? Because it's a reality. Why do you think in the end times, in the book of Revelation, an angel must come and divide the wheat from the chaff? The wheat and the chaff live in church community like this until the very end. And most of us think that some of the chaff are saved because they show some outward signs. But for the most part, there, there, there has always been chaff in the image of the church, the nation of Israel, and in the church. There's always people there, we would call them tares, that don't, they're not truly converted. And so when Paul says these things, he is speaking to those regenerated, changed, those who believe and those who are continuing on. All of that is packed into this first verse, and this is precisely why we couldn't get past it this week. Because it's, it's way broader than my first 12 readings of it. 
The one who stands firm till the end will be saved. It doesn't mean the one who somehow miraculously keeps the stuff going. It means God will preserve him, but that person is going to bear fruit and live and breathe Jesus their whole life. That's a true statement. And let me tell you, it's one heck of a warning. Why did Jesus say it? To warn. Saying these things in front of one, the son of perdition, the one who showed some signs, Judas, but did not continue. And in the church, there are many Judases. See, Christians are in Christ. This is good stuff, right? This, is, of course, is the other guy's stuff. <laughs> and he was brilliant. See, Christians are in Christ. The phrases in Christ, in Him, or the equivalent occur nine times just in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 23. In Christ, over and over and over, nine times just in this short passage. They occur 164 times in all of Paul's writings. So this is a phrase that he uses very often. He employs it and he does it strategically. The phrases mean more than just believing on Christ or being saved by His atonement. They mean being joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true of Christ is also true of us. Let that sink in. On this basis, Paul goes so far as to say, God raised us up with Christ and seated us uh, with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That comes a little later in chapter 2, verse 6. Now this is a difficult concept. And the Bible uses numerous images to teach it to us, right? This idea of union with Christ. It uses a lot of illustrations and examples, images. For instance, the union of a man and woman in marriage, right? Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, which we'll get to, is Paul just talking about men and women getting married and what that should look like? Or is he talking about what Christ and His church look like? You guys will remember what I preached at your wedding, and that was exactly what we preached. Because what a marriage does isn't just, I found my soulmate, yay, this is wonderful, we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. That's not just marriage, that's wonderful, that's great for us, but it also shows and paints a picture and gives a solid image, it should, of the relationship with Christ and His church. It is a similar union to a man and woman being married, and in marriage, married. Very important that we get this. That's one of the uh, illustrations that Scripture makes. Another one would be, uh, oh, let's see. How about, how about the union of the vine and the branches in John 15? Notice how they're in John 15. They're tied together. You have the branches. You have the vine. The, you know, the branches come off of the vine. Who is the vine? Christ. Who are the branches? Us. There's a union between those two things. They're actually one in a way. One comes from the other. How about the wholeness of the spiritual temple in which Christ is the foundation and we are the individual stones? That's in Ephesians 2. It's like the church 
is a temple, right? And Christ is the solid foundation. And every saint is a stone in the walls. And we form the temple. That's an idea and an image of the union. How about the union of the head and the other members of the body in one organism? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? We're all members of one body. Who's our head? Christ. So this idea of union is essential that we understand this. It's a, it's a critical doctrine that we have been joined with Christ in such a way that we will live and act like Him, that people will see, as we sing so often, Christ in us. And it's important that you know, whether we understand this union very well or not, um, it is literally... Now, I know it's a difficult truth. I know it's hard to understand this being yoked with Christ in such a way, in an inseparable way. I, I know it's challenging, but we must understand that it is the very essence of salvation. It is. The Scottish theologian John Murray wrote uh, a great deal on this subject. In fact, you know, a lot of these older theologians spent a great deal of time on one particular doctrine, and his was this union with Christ. He said this, Union with Christ has its source in the election of God, the Father, before the foundation of the world, and it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. That's an amazing Amazing quote. So, for clarification's sake, a true Christian is a saint, faithful, and in Christ. Do those three things define you? Are you set apart? Do you sense that you do not belong to this crooked and perverse world? Are you faithful to Christ? Do you love Him? Do you obey Him? Are you in Christ? Or better yet, is Christ in you? Does the union exist? Do you bear Christ's qualities and attributes? What? Love, mercy, humility, holiness, righteousness, submission. Do those things. Are those things evident? Are they present in and coming through your life? If you are joined, if you are, let's say, in Christ, then the simple fact is that you will be like Him. And I would say that we must test ourselves in these things. There's way much deception out there. Now you're a Christian and, and this is what it looks like and you're a Christian and that's what it looks like. Let me tell you, Ephesians 1.1 illustrates what being a Christian looks like and you're hearing it right now. You're a saint, you're faithful, and you're in Christ. You are in union with Him. It's, it, and, and I hate it when I hear this. I hear it all the time. You have to make Christ first in your life. Christ has to be number one in your life. I hate that. Christ is not worthy of a placement in our life. You don't make him number one. The scripture teaches clearly he is your life. He is your very life. Your life, your spiritual life, your wholeness, your purpose, your security, everything. It comes from the wellspring of himself. He is your life. He's not number one, two, or three. He is your very life. You get your movement. You move to and fro. You get your being from Him. So He's not a placement. If you're in Christ, He is your 
life. He is foundational, not a placement, foundational. He is your very existence. He is your heart cry. He is your burning desire. He is your passion. He is your focus. That's who he is. Does the world come in and frustrate those things at times? Absolutely. And that's when we start to say, you need to get Christ back in the first slot in your life. No, he is your life. That's what you need to remember. Without him, you're not alive. You go back to Hebrew, necros, dead. You're a corpse without him. He is your life. Let's move to the what. Oh my gosh, we have, I can't. I think we got to continue next week. I think we have to. There's no way. I'm at 52 minutes. Holy bean sprouts. <laughs> what am I supposed to do, Jesus? Yeah, who said it, Ann? She goes, stop. <laughs> Keep, going. Keep going, yeah. Some of you guys remember those hour and 20 minute sermons from before, right? So... Let me see how many pages I have left. Oh, mama. Oh, mama. No, mama. <laughs> no. I think we'll bring it to a close right there, seriously. And that's, that's the, the beauty of teaching expositionally through books. It's not like, oh, I got to get on here. You know, you, you, can, you can stop and continue uh, the next week. Let me, uh, let me say just a few things before we wrap it up. Maybe I'll make this my closing statement and then I'll rewrite part of this for next week. And I'm, I'm okay with doing some of the who, what, where, when next week. The other ones actually go pretty quick, but I don't want to chance it because it's already 55 almost hereafter, or 55 minutes into the sermon. All right, ending thoughts based on what we've talked about. Before walking out of this place, which we will do in probably 20 minutes or so, we must remember, as I just said, that Christ is our life. We must remember, and I have to ad-lib this because I wasn't prepared to stop right here, but that's okay because there's a Holy Spirit. Thank God for that. We must remember what it means to be in Christ, that we are in Him. We must remember that apart from Him, we are dead, so He is our very existence in life. And we must remember that it's because of him and because of what he's done that we have anything at all in terms of mission and ministry. What I'm saying is that what we've learned has taught us that Christ is our starting point, that it all begins with Jesus. As we used to say all the time, it's all about Jesus. Life and ministry and mission and obedience, and pleasing God, and all of these things, it starts with what Christ has done. You see, if we get that order wrong, and it's all about what we're doing, and then we put Jesus out here, what we've just done is we've just exchanged true Christianity and the gospel for Islam or some other false religion. Because that's the order in all other religions. That's what's so marvelous about Christianity. That's what's so amazing about it, and that's why people hate it. Because, see, Christ is the starting point. He begins the good work in a person. And from that point, that person begins to move on in, obviously, faith and repentance and obedience and service and ministry and missional work and loving their families rightly and treating their wives rightly and, and fostering and cultivating a family life of faith and fear of the Lord and these wonderful, beautiful things that should exemplify us as Christians. 
So it's critical that we understand that we're not going to leave this place and try to do a whole bunch of things. What we're going to do is we're going to, before we leave, we're going to remember that Christ is the starting point, that it all begins with him. And we're going to be so thankful for that. And now, because we understand the gospel rightly, that doctrine of it begins with Christ, now we can begin to make necessary changes. We can begin to move through life in obedience, serving God, not trying to earn favor from Him, not trying to earn uh, uh, blessings from Him, not trying to get salvation from Him, not trying. See, that's right. Isn't that the reverse of it? It, the world has it like that. i got to do all this stuff, and I hope the big eye in the sky catches a glimpse of what I'm doing and then pours out His favor and blessings and salvation on me. That's every other religion in a nutshell. But in ours, it's reversed. We love Christ because He what? First loved us. Because He came and intervened. He took a corpse like this a spiritually dead Lazarus. I couldn't raise myself. How could a dead person raise themselves? He raised me to life. And now I've got the joy of the Holy Spirit and the joy of salvation. And I've got a ministry and I've got a mission that that I'm a part of. And I've been invited into this global thing that Christ is doing throughout the world, redeeming his people and ushering in his kingdom. He's going to come and consummate that. It's going to be amazing. And if you're in Christ, you're a part of that. And it's because of God's infinite mercy and grace, not because of what you did. The only thing you did was sin yourself toward hell. That's all you did. And aren't you thankful for him that he came and interrupted your life? I've never met a true Christian who says, I just wish he hadn't come and done this. <laughs> I've met plenty of people that say, man, I'm not sure about this thing. And I'm, Well, maybe you just haven't been regenerated because I tell you, when that faith comes and that repentance comes and it comes in power through the Holy Spirit, there is joy. There is elation. There is a sense of purpose. There is a sense of of value and identity that comes with it. Christ is yours, people. Because he's made himself yours, now we can begin to live for him. We can begin to honor him in our marriages. We can begin to honor him in our workplaces. We can do all of these things as a result of what he did for us. People used to criticize Martin Luther all the time. He, He was a fantastic preacher. He really was. His sermons are available. They're amazing. I can't, I understand one-third of what he writes because he's, again. But they used to say to him, why is it that you bombard us every weekend with justification by faith alone? Why do you always preach that doctrine? And he said, young man, let me help you understand something. The reason why I focus on justification alone, that basically means being, by, being saved and made right with God by faith alone. The reason why I proclaim that every week is because you guys forget it every week. Because what happens with you is you come here and you nod your head and you take communion and you say hallelujah and then you walk out and you think that somehow you've got to earn something with God, that somehow you've got to make yourself more appealing to him, that he'll love you rightly or save you and all these things. This is a thing that Luther had to deal with during the Reformation. And guess what? It's a thing that plagues us today. We have been justified by simple faith. By believing, and that is a gift in and of itself of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to leave here trying to earn, trying to make a way for ourselves with God. Let's just respond humbly 
to Him in love and gratitude because of His bountiful mercy and grace that He pours out upon us.